Welcome to the Scuff Podcast, where we talk about U.S. soccer. Our guest today is Naomi Gurma, one of the bright new stars on the U.S. women's national team. She started both friendlies against Germany in the past week, indicating she might be the first center back on the team sheet now. It's been a meteoric rise. She was the number one draft pick out of Stanford and just finished her rookie season with the San Diego Wave, in which she won both NWSL Rookie of the Year and Defender of the Year. Not just Rookie Defender of the Year, but Defender of the Year for all of NWSL. Sanjay Sujanta Kumar, the roving scuffed correspondent, interviewed Naomi on Saturday between the two friendlies against Germany, covering everything from her Ethiopian-American background in the Bay Area to her academic work in symbolic systems, which she explains. After the interview, Greg and I will discuss the loss and the win to Germany and Vlatko Andonovsky's performance in general. That starts just after the 24-minute mark. For now, here's Sanjay and Naomi. Welcome, everyone, to the Scuffs Podcast. This is Sanjay, and I'm joined by U.S. Women's National Team defender Naomi Gurma. Naomi, thanks so much for being on the show today. Hi, thank you for having me. Tough question right off the bat. Um, you grew up and went to school in NorCal, and you now live in SoCal, in a city many people would love to live in. Uh, which do you prefer, NorCal or SoCal? Oh, my gosh, you're starting with this. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, it's so hard. I will say SoCal has kind of taken my heart just because San Diego is so amazing. Um, But I'll always love NorCal. They're just so different, you know. But, like, weather, vibes, everything, I feel like SoCal is probably top. Okay. Um, (laughs) So... You obviously have your family, a lot of family and friends in NorCal. Um, could you tell me about your family and your Ethiopian heritage, like your parents and your background? Yeah. So both of my parents were born in Ethiopia and came to the U.S. in around like their 20s. Um, they met here. And then my brother and I were both born in San Jose, California. Um, so have lived in, have been in NorCal for pretty much all of my life. Um, I went to school there too, but I just kind of grew up around um, the Ethiopian community. There's like a decent amount in the Bay Area, and that's actually how I started playing soccer. Um, So I feel like I grew up, you know, like at home, around family, like that, like the food, like that was always like about our culture. Um, And then going to school and being in other activities was more like getting introduced to the American culture. So I kind of grew up with both. Um, So, yeah, it's been a huge part of, my life and um i'm very thankful for that and are you and your brother fluent in uh, amharic yes we still we i we try to talk as much as we can at least with our parents we speak it but that is like primarily what was spoken to us at home okay very cool um so so yeah could you describe what it was like to grow up where you did i know it was like a majority white town right in your first generation person of color so um, yeah, what mm-hmm. was it like growing up where you did? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a lot of me trying to navigate both of the cultures and um, just honestly trying to fit in, which is like kind of what every kid wants. But, you know, at the same time, understanding that, you know, I have this other culture and it's something to be proud of, not something to hide. So I think that's something 
I kind of had to learn more as I was growing up and learn to appreciate um, just growing, being a black girl in a, at a majority white school is difficult and you do feel different. Um, and especially like in women's soccer, like a sport that lacks diversity a lot because of accessibility and affordability. So I think just both of those things, both in school and soccer, um, kind of understanding that it's okay to be different um, and I should be proud of who I am, even if it doesn't necessarily look like everyone around me. Definitely. And yeah, I can definitely relate to that as well. Um, so you mentioned yeah. earlier uh, just how you started playing. Um, so it was through the Ethiopian community. Um, is that, how did you start playing organized soccer as well? Um, so yeah, I started playing, it was called Malada soccer and it's like all the Ethiopians in San Jose would get together on Saturday and play. Um, and then we'd play at the playground after. Um, so that was really fun. And then I think when, I think it was when I got to like third grade, I was kind of like, Oh, I want to try playing like on a real team. Um, and my best friend in elementary school, um, we used to go to the YMCA together. And one day she was just like, you should just come with me and like, just try out, like, just come to my team. So um, I went to Central Valley Crossfire and actually ended up, I started on like the lowest team and then moved up to the top team the next season. I ended up playing for them until I was like 16 years old. So that was pretty much my club team my whole life. Like, um, yeah. And so, yeah. I, oh, sorry. Keep, keep going. Yeah. Sorry. No, that, that was really, yeah. It was like, I played for them for a really long time. Um, had like pretty much the same coach and like then kind of started doing like ODP and national team like through that. Um, but yeah. Yes, yeah, so that touched on uh, my next question. So a lot of kids tend to jump around different teams in youth soccer because they and or their parents want to be a part of what is supposedly the best team, right? Or the most trendy team. Um, could you yeah. discuss your decision to stay with that club for as long as you did for like seven years, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it was like that. I didn't even think of, you know, jumping around teams. Like it was like one of those things where this is, that was what I knew. And like, that was what my parents knew. And we thought like, this is kind of how you go along. Um, like without even like having like college soccer, or like national team in mind, it was just kind of like, well, I was playing because I thought it was fun and I liked my team and uh, I thought I was good at it. So um, yeah, I mean, I feel like we kind of, formed a community there and um just I had a girl who lived around the corner from me whose parents would drive me to practice every day um and we had this whole carpool and I literally wouldn't still be playing soccer if it wasn't for those rides that I got growing up um so I feel like it was just like the community and being loyal to the team um so I like I just wanted to stay and I wanted to keep winning with them even if like we weren't like we weren't playing in ECNL or, you know, like any of the top leagues as those started to develop. Um, but yeah, it worked out. I'm thankful for that. <laughs> um, but I didn't yeah, really know sense. all that was out there. <laughs> um, so you did start guessing, right. In in training and games for beyond the force. Um, yeah. Was there anything else you did to make sure you were challenging yourself as much as you could a while with uh, crossfire? Yeah. So our coach was like really adamant about all of us trying out for ODP. Um, and I had no idea what it was. And he was like, he pretty much had everyone sign up and I was like, 
this was kind of like the first time I had ever like been compared to people outside of like my little bubble of players that I knew. So like, I didn't know how I would compete against them or like how I would compare. Um, and if I was like good enough. So I was definitely like very nervous and like, didn't, I, I guess I didn't know how I'd measure up. Um, but I ended up making that the first ODP team and then went on to make the regional team and then got scouted for youth national team from there. And I feel like it just kind of, that was kind of how I progressed. And every time I would move up or like go into a bigger pool, I was always like, okay, how am I going to be able to compare here? Um, just because I knew like I, I came, I wasn't playing for, you know, the best club, but uh, I like, you know, had to believe in myself and just show up and play, play my game the way I know how to. So yeah, that was like kind of my journey alongside Crossfire, which I'm very thankful for because I wouldn't have even known about, you know, ODP or any of these other programs that I could get involved in. Right. So yeah, looking ahead to your, your future as a player, like when did you realize becoming a pro was a real possibility? Was there a specific game or tournament or conversation you had with someone? Was it that uh, U14 national team call up or was it something else before or after? I think it wasn't until I got to college and like established myself in college. And I, I don't know if I was talking to my coach or someone and they were just like, Oh, so you're going pro after? And I was like, oh like <laughs> yeah I guess that's like I had an option and um yeah I didn't I I feel like I was always thinking of the next you know step with like the national team always being like this big goal and like something I'd look up I I had looked up to um but yeah I feel like um when I was in high school until I got scouted I wasn't sure that I I didn't know that college soccer would be an option for me so yeah I think it was just like I think getting confidence at like each level and establishing establishing myself there and then believing I could make it to the next step was really key for me. Uh, did you think about leaving NorCal for college or was Stanford always the goal? <laughs> um, so I think I thought about leaving NorCal, but I didn't think about leaving California, <laughs> which I guess I still technically have it. But um, yeah, I I looked around California and then I saw Stanford and, just the academics, athletics, it was just taught for me, and location was prime, so, yeah. Um, you were the captain of Stanford as a sophomore. How would you describe yourself as a leader? Like, are you someone who leads by example? Are you a motivator, too? Like, how would you describe your leadership style? Um, yeah, I feel like I lead by example, and um, I feel like I'm, like, pretty personable and approachable um, as a leader. And yeah, just try to put myself and my teammates in the best, best position so that we can succeed, and whether that's being vocal or, you know, just leading by what I'm doing, um, just trying to do whatever the team needs. Do you want to be the national team captain one day? Is that something you think about? <laughs> um, I mean, right now I feel like I'm thinking about making rosters and the World Cup and stuff like that. But, yeah, that would be, a, a like, a huge honor, and I think every player would dream to be the captain of the national team. So your rookie NWSL season's in the books. Uh, the Wave were the first expansion yeah. team to make the playoffs and also to win a playoff game. Mm -hmm. 
on the way to smash the NWSL single game attendance record. Um, after being the number one mm-hmm. pick, you were the rookie of the year, the defensive player of the year, and uh, an MVP finalist. <laughs> Not bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how, would, how would you describe? How would you describe this season, both individually and for the wave as a whole? I mean, the season was incredible. Um, I think individually it was just, I mean, exciting to play as a professional, um, especially with how far the league has come now. And, you know, now to be a part of it is something I'm really proud of and excited about. Um, And as far as our team, like, I mean, I just love San Diego. And we just have a good group um, from – the coaches to like our support staff to the players it's just a good group of people who I feel like were all kind of locked in and understood at least like for us like yeah we're an expansion team but we're gonna you know we want to compete for the championship and we're like we want to go as far as we can and I think you know it was unfortunate to get knocked out in the semis but I'm proud we made it you know to the playoff to be the first expansion team in the playoffs and get I think the first expansion team to get a win in the playoffs so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good things, um, and I think I'm just really excited because there's, I feel like there's still so much more to come for us. Yeah, yeah, pretty perfect rookie year for for you and and first season for the team. Um, for for you, like you've also dealt with adversity in your career and life. Uh, could you tell me about mm-hmm. the ACL tear at Stanford? Obviously, very difficult timing. Um, what that recovery mm-hmm. was like physically and mentally? Yeah. I was, I was like heartbroken when I tore my ACL. Um, yeah, it was just, the timing was hard. It was in the middle of COVID and, you know, we were finally getting to the point where we could almost play and then it happened. So um, it was just disappointing. Um, but I do think it was like, in the end, ended up being positive for me. Um, just like having to build back up um, mentally and physically and, I don't know, just kind of proving my proving to myself like I could face adversity and I could come back stronger and it wasn't something to kind of like shy away from. So, yeah, I think in in the end it was positive for me, but in the moment it was heartbreaking. So we're speaking the day before the second Germany friendly. The team has lost mm-hmm. three straight games for the first time since 1993. Uh, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on the last three games and – how do you think the team is progressing as we get closer to the World Cup? What have you seen from these top European teams, and how do you think you guys are are progressing? Yeah, I mean, I think we're definitely disappointed with the losses. Um, I think our performances have definitely progressed, like from England, Spain to this last Germany game. I think that was definitely a positive for us. Um, now it's just like closing out games, making sure we're um, putting teams away when we can, and then also obviously keeping the ball out of our net. But, um, yeah, I think everyone's excited to just kind of go out tomorrow and um, compete, honestly, and um, play our game and get a win. Who are you closest to on the national team? Um, I'm probably closest to Sophia Smith. We were, we were in the same class at Stanford, and We've played, like, youth national teams together since we were, like, 14. Gotcha. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. 
So what does it mean to you to be a part of a very diverse group of young players on the rise with the national team? And what do you think it could mean for soccer status in the African-American community? I think it's really exciting. Um, and I hope, you know, a lot of diversity rising through and now playing at the highest level will kind of reflect and trickle down into youth soccer and um, hopefully inspire young kids to kind of see us and be excited and motivated to play too and like kind of feel like they have space to you know be in the soccer world and they feel like they're represented there um and I hope you know more like structurally there's more accessibility for them to be able to join and um yeah yeah, is that something y'all are really conscious of, like the you and so and Mal and the others talk about that, like the opportunity you have to, to really push the game in the black community? Yeah, we've talked about it. We did a we talked with Bry Scurry, um, with me, Alana and Midge during qualifiers, just kind of about representation and how it's been lacking and like on, probably still honestly still is lacking, but it's starting to get better, um, at least in women's soccer and um, it's something we're excited about and proud to be part of. And um, we just hope it's a trend that keeps kind of going this way. Um, and, yeah, it's it's exciting to be a part of it, especially after growing up and not having many people that look like us to look up to in soccer. So, yeah, it's exciting. What do you hope to accomplish in your career? Uh, first, we'll start with the national team. Um, I mean, on the field, just continue the legacy that, you know, has been paved and win World Cups and Olympics. And um, I think off the field, just continue, like, the fight that they've set out and, like, the standard that they've, I think, this the U.S. Women's National Team has kind of set the standard across all sports um, and kind of shown, like, you can stand up for things that are not sports-related or um yeah, you can just be a voice for so many people. And I think that's something that our generation really wants to continue um, as we rise to the national team. And then in terms of club soccer, what are you hoping to accomplish moving forward? Your career is obviously off to an amazing start and maybe a sell. Um, but what else do you want to accomplish? And do you want to play in Europe one day? Oh, in my club career? Yeah. Um, well, I want to win an NWSL championship. Um and yeah, I mean, I'm not, I think if an opportunity comes up, I'm definitely not closed off to playing overseas, but right now I'm really happy in San Diego and I'm just focused on that and um, wanting to come in our second year and, you know, make it further and break more records and get more wins than we did this year. So, yeah. Do you have an interesting academic background? You did a bachelor's degree in symbolic systems and then well first off can you tell us what exactly that that means symbolic <laughs> um yes uh so symbolic systems it so it's interdisciplinary and it has it's computer science psychology philosophy and linguistics so you kind of take classes throughout um those uh like those spaces and it's like kind of like real like to apply it to the real real world it's like kind of like ai human computer interaction it's kind of like the focus and like ethics around technology and things like that um but yeah that's symbolic system simsys as we call it 
That sounds really cool, and thank you for uh, translating <laughs> that into terms we yeah. can understand. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so you were one of you were one of twelve people selected for the Mayfield Fellows Program at Stanford, and you're now doing a mm-hmm. master's, right, in uh, management science and engineering. Yeah. So how's that program? How's that program going, and how are you able to balance that with club and international soccer? Yeah. Um, the program's going good. It was going better when I was at school, but. Um, I'm just kind of taking it, um, like I'm taking one course right now. Um, I knew like this quarter it'd be like playoffs and, and, and camps up camp in England, Spain, and then camp here. So I just want to make sure, um, you know, now, like I'm a professional now and that's my focus. Um, and I love still being able to get my education, but I want to make sure I'm I'm balancing it well and I'm still able to rest and recover as much as I need. So, um, I'm in one class right now. It's really interesting, um, so that's good. <laughs> that makes it easier. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I've always been, like, really into school, and my parents would always tell me, like, your academics have to be good first, and then you can do soccer and all those other things. So I've always prioritized that. So I think it's awesome that I still kind of have the opportunity to do both. Yeah, do you have a good idea of what you want to do after soccer with everything you study? Like, tell me about that, what you're thinking long-term, if you're even thinking about that. Um, Not really, honestly. Um, <laughs> that's kind of why I did symbolic systems, because it was a lot of different things that I was interested in, and I was never like, oh, I want to major in this one thing. Um, but what I'm doing with the master's is kind of more, like, business-like. And then um, you mentioned the May- Mayfield Fellowship that I did, which is, like, pretty much all about entrepreneurship, um, like VC and like that whole ecosystem. So something in there, (laughs) as you can see, I haven't really narrowed it down, but um, I feel like at some point all during my career, I'll get inspired to, you know, go down one path. Yeah. Yeah. You got time to figure that out. I think. (laughs) (laughs) So what advice would you give to first-generation American kids and their families who don't know much about navigating the youth sports scene? I think I would just say, like, don't be afraid to ask. And I think I literally got into so many places, especially where I am right now, like, because I would ask and my mom would, like, my mom wasn't, like, my mom would ask someone for a ride or she'd ask like, what's this? Like, how do I sign her up for this? Um, or whatever it may be. And I think like that really helped me, um, just kind of expand what was like, expand my understanding of what was out there for me. Um, and like just having people in my corner, like my club coach who was like, you're getting recruited by teams, like for college and all these things. And like explain to me what the process is like and, made sure I was, like, going on visits and, like, seeing what school I, w- I really wanted to go to. Um, I think, like, without the community and those people around me, like, I, you know, when I just wouldn't have, wouldn't be playing for the national team or playing for San Diego Wave um, or maybe even have gone to Stanford. So, yeah, I'm just, like, so thankful for that. And I'm thankful my parents were willing to, you know, like, go out of their comfort zone and drive me three hours to a tournament or <laughs> and lose their weekends but um yeah I think just asking for help and um being receptive to what those are what people around you are kind of telling you is really helpful for me 
Anything else we didn't cover that you'd like to mention or that you want the fan you want the fans to know about yourself? Um <laughs> I don't know, like a fun fact? Or just like something Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I don't know. Something random something random or fun, go for it. I feel like people might already know this, but I feel like the main shockers are that is that I don't like chocolate. That usually gets people, but I've said that on all my fun fact things now. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for taking the time, Naomi. It's been great to to speak with you today, and uh, good luck on, on in the friendly tomorrow night, and uh, good luck next year as we get closer to the World Cup. Thank you, and thanks for having me. All right. Bell's here with Greg. We're going to go deeper into the problems with the U.S. women's national team after the World Cup is over, the men's World Cup, that is, of course. But for now, we're just going to briefly recap the two friendlies against Germany. Well, let me let me just jump in and say problems and strengths with the U.S. Women's National Team, right? Because uh, we saw some we saw some nice things from them uh, in these two games against a very good Germany side. Yeah, we we certainly weren't toothless. I mean, you you couldn't say that about us. Unfortunately, though, we've been outpossessed and out xg'd in our last four matches, and we went one and three in them. We did beat Germany right at the end. People take comfort from that. The end of that losing streak, um, right? I think so, yes. And I think I think the key here is uh, that that last Germany game especially still shows something we've talked about before, and that is our program still has an, uh, an incredibly high floor. Like, even when we aren't clearly the best team on the field, we are, we are in it with a shout, and we can win games even if we're not the best team on the field um, because of how dangerous some individual players are um, and because of how quickly we can pounce on mistakes that even... Uh, our best opponents will make. Well, let's talk about the two games. The first one was a loss, a 2-1 loss uh, to Germany in Miami or Fort Lauderdale, I guess. Yep, coming on the heels of uh, losses to England and Spain in the window prior. So this became our third straight loss, uh, which hasn't happened since 1991, I think, was what I was seeing. Um, So this is unprecedented territory. Also, you know, it's not usually the case that we play three straight games against uh, teams as good as England, Spain, and Germany. Yeah, credit to the program for getting these games scheduled. That was That's great because that's been a criticism of the women's national team that they haven't played against, aren't able to play against uh, top-level competition. So to get England, Spain, and Germany in the span of you know a month and a half is great. Yeah, this um, is what we want to see. This is definitely what we want to see. No one, no one is sleepwalking through these games. These felt like big games for both teams playing mm-hmm. pretty much from whistle to whistle. Flacco and Anofsky trotted out a U.S. lineup of Casey Murphy in goal, Sofia Huerta, Alana Cook, Naomi Gurma, and Emily Fox across the back line. The midfield was, in both games actually, Rose Lavelle, uh, well, well, Andy Sullivan as the six, and then Rose Lavelle and Lindsey Horan as the more advanced midfielders. And then Sophia Smith, Alex Morgan, and Mallory Pugh across the front line. Yeah, that front six seems more or less set in stone at this point. Uh, it's hard to imagine. I mean, it, it, the fact that we ran it out after the two losses last window shows that Flatco doesn't see that front six as the thing that needs to be changed, I don't think. Um, does and he see most, any, that anything needs to be changed? <laughs> I was going to say the back line is also pretty well set with Cuerta and Fox on the outsides. And then some some two of three of Germa, Sauerbrunn, and Cook uh, at center backs. The, the question remains what happens when Crystal Dunn gets back to health. 
because I don't think she's in any way fit to be running 60 or 70 minutes yet. So obviously she's not uh, really a candidate to be starting, uh, wasn't in this window. So that's for, that's a big question for me once she's back, where she fits into an 11, where Vlatko is going to see her fitting into an 11. Yeah, and I, I mean, Cook Cook ended up not starting the second game, maybe because she struggled in this first game. Is that uh, kind of how you read it? Because she did struggle a little bit. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. Cook had been the sort of, uh, of those three center backs, Cook, Germa, and Sauerbrunn. Cook had been the constant, right? They'd kind of wrote, he, Vladko had rotated Germa and Sauerbrunn um, as almost a way to be like, okay, if, if Sauerbrunn's ready to pass the torch, if Germa's ready to take it, that's what it'll be, and it'll be Germa and Cook. And so I don't know if this signals that, that he's now thinking maybe Cook is the one who's, who could be dropped uh, or become the rotational center back choice because she did, uh, she did, she was culpable for Germany's winning goal in the first match. She made a couple of mistakes in the, in the last window that cost us. Um, so I don't know. I'm not sure if he's ha- having second thoughts about Cook's standing uh, in the center back depth chart. And now Germa is the one who starts both games. So, um, yeah, it wasn't just the being culpable on the game-winning goal. She also lost her marker on a header that uh, that drew a good save from Casey Murphy in this game. Let's let's talk about the game. We're not going to do like a we can't we're not going to do like a full breakdown of both games, but we'll talk about each one a little bit. The I thought early on the press was working pretty well in this game. The we got some big chances. Um, you know, Pew and Smith both both pulled the trigger from a tight angle and drew a decent. Well, I think Smith drew a decent save and Pew, or Smith, Pew drew a decent save and Smith uh, kicked it over. And then um, there was that moment of brilliance from Rose Lavelle in the first half when she um, she megged a she megged a defender on the end line and then kind of tried to play it to Haran. Haran it did fall to Haran. And then Haran's shot deflected off the crossbar and then went straight down and hit the goal line. It's very close to going in. And then Pew, Pew was 1v1 with the keeper um, and just didn't, uh, you know, just didn't finish. So lots of chances for the U.S. early on. Yeah, and, and like we've seen, almost all of those chances came from transition moments. Like there were almost no chances that involved long buildups from the U.S. And I think that has been our that has been our biggest issue is, is we don't do a great job um, when we are sort of uh, in control of the ball, creating, creating high percentage looks from our buildup. We are excellent at creating high percentage chances um, from opponents' mistakes where we can very quickly run at them. Yeah. Which is good. I just, I want I want us to, I'm greedy, right? I want us to keep doing that. I, I don't, it doesn't have to be a choice. We don't have to just choose one or the other that we can be good at. I want us to keep doing this uh, incredibly ruthless punishing of mistakes. And I want to add a ton of danger because we have it. We have it in us. I want to add more danger in our buildup. And what we're going to get into is right now, I think the best way to do that is to literally just steal the game film of what Germany do when they're attacking in possession and see if we can just do what they do. <laughs> we joked, we joked after the last window that we need to hire a final third coach to, to, to manage our I didn't think that was a joke I didn't think that was a joke (laughs) Um, we don't need to anymore because we now have the tape and we can just say hey you see what Germany are doing here this is what we need to do and we can get into that more later or we can talk about it right now let's talk about it right now yeah 
Okay, so here's what Germany do so much better than the U.S. And that is, uh, I mean, it's it's going to sound really basic, but it's triangles and rotations around the ball once they get into the final third. And it's something that the U.S. Uh, almost never do. We we saw a little bit more of it in this window, and I, that it for me is is really promising and encouraging because I don't think it necessarily happened by accident um, because we we'd seen so little of it in the last windows that any evidence of it is a positive. Uh, but what we've seen from the U S and what we've been harping on is this tendency to get the ball into the final third, just wide of the box. And then everyone will run away from the ball carrier and she'll just deliver a super low percentage cross in and we'll hope to score a, you know, a miracle goal on the first ball or out muscle people in the scramble and create something from that. And for me, not just aesthetically, but I think mathematically, I think those are way too low percentage, given the, given the talent that we have at our disposal to do more sophisticated things. Um, and uh, even though I was just talking about sophisticated things, I'm going to dispense with like the fancy soccer jargon here, coaching jargon. And I'm just going to get really like simple to things that any player at any level can understand uh, for, these moments, for these moments in the final third. Uh, and what I'm going to say is we need more players to show their belly button to the ball. Like you can tell any player at any age, any level that, and I think they can kind of understand what you're saying right now. When the ball gets up into that final third, Huerta or even our wingers, when they have it uh, towards the edge of the field, every single other attacking player turns their belly button to the goal and just like runs at the goal for the inevitable cross. And when you get this feedback loop because we cross it so much, of course, that's what players are going to do. And of course, since that's what the teammates are doing, there's no one to pass to. So, of course, we're going to cross the ball in. And so you just, it just builds on itself in spirals. And that's our attack in possession, almost inevitably. You watch Germany play and you, and you break their tape down and it is phenomenal. Like they get the ball wide and you'll have one player turn her body, belly button to the ball. She's checking in to come play soccer with her teammate. When the U.S. player gets dragged out with that player, that player will veer into new space, like abandon it her mark will chase her and then a new Germany player will turn her belly button to the ball and she's coming out to play soccer and you create these little rotations and patterns that anyone who's familiar with the men's team will recognize this that disorganize the opponent while you have the ball and it's it's exactly what I want to see the U.S. do more of and we finally saw a taste of it in game number two did we that's I mean that's how we got our goal right we uh we connected a pass (laughs) into the box to a player's feet rather than just being like, I'm just going to lump it in, in the air, chest high, see what happens. That's true. It was Smith to Lavelle. Lavelle kind of dribbled around a little bit, played it back to Smith. Who's if I remember correctly, whose belly button was facing Lavelle's. There you uh, go. So I'm, I'm introducing a new analytic. I don't know if this one exists yet in the, in, in the popular domain, but I'm calling it uh, sky aft. So it's very, it's a very easy to remember. Uh, yeah, that's super catchy. Yep. <laughs> sky aft. And all I'm looking for when I watch the U S women play now for the possession side is successful, consecutive, intentional actions in the final third sky aft. Ooh. And, and I get there because you watch what Germany are doing and it's like, yes, this is what they're doing. They've connected five straight passes intentionally to a, you know, a person doing something intentional to create uh, space for their teammate or themselves. Um, and the U.S. so infrequently does that. Um, if you go through the tape, even against the... the oh, yeah, almost teams, never. 
Nigeria, like our our attacking possessions once you get to the final third are like one action. It's like one pass out to the wide player, low percentage cross. Like that's it. Bang, bang, done. And you, you're not even giving a defense a chance to make a mistake. You're not giving the defense a chance to to have somebody make the wrong switch to a different player or defend the wrong space. You're playing it before you even have a chance for that defense to do that. Um, and instead, what I want to see is I want to see our good players holding the ball, poking and prodding, giving that defense a chance to screw up, and then punishing it ruthlessly. Here's the, th- here's the thing. <laughs> No, I love that. I love that because I think that's right. You don't you don't see hardly any successful consecutive actions. Intentional actions. You got to you got to have the whole sky aft. It's yeah. S C I A F T. Sky aft. Like even it's the gonna, goal it's gonna we big. Even, it's gonna be big. No, no, I like it. I like it a lot actually. And the even the goal we scored in this game to equalize in the 85th minute was um it, it involved I guess two successful con- consecutive intentional actions. <laughs> In the final, in the final third, <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh it's a big deal. Like, and, and that's progress. And we uh the the actually built the build up uh to that build up was similar. Like, it was also good. We we got down the wing. There was nothing on, so we reset in in the final third. Reset intentionally, and then hit a ball into Lindsey Haran's feet um in on the left side of the box, right? Oh, and yeah. Haran mm-hmm. is now holding the ball on the left side of the box, and. Rather than just lumping a ball in, she doesn't have a lot of options, but she holds it and, again, pokes and prods herself with the ball at her feet. And Germany didn't break. Germany didn't make a mistake. And so she reset it out to Huerta uh, on the right side. So she switches it all the way over. And then you get the old U.S., what I hope is the old U.S., and Huerta just gets it there and lumps it into the box and Germany easily clear it. But then on the ensuing throw-in, that's when we do the good sky afting and get our, get our shot. But, I mean, it wasn't really that it wasn't that good of sky afting. It was, um, I mean, it was, it was excellent play by, by Morgan to win the ball off of them. Is that, are we talking about the same play? No, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm in game two now. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'm all over the place. So game two, game two, the, the winning goal. Sorry if I jumped, jumped around on you. Yeah. So you're saying that the, the, the intentional actions were, you're talking about the, the goal that Smith scored in combination with Lavelle, right? Yeah, but that's I, the I, tying the tying goal in game two. Okay, how do you think? Um, how do you think Vlatko thinks about all this? Because it's been month after month of you know winning, but winning with almost zero sky afts. Is is he <laughs> is he a good coach? Does he know what he's doing? I'm not convinced, and and something that actually worried me was, and I just I haven't dug into his full comments. But after the game, after the second game, I, I, I think I read something that said one of his issues was our lack of creativity in the final third. And I couldn't tell if that means he's trying to create, you know, increase our sky afts or if he's actually like, we finally did it a couple of times. And he's like, oh, we are, we got to, we're not, that's not creative enough. And, and he wants to go back to the, everyone run at the goal and we cross it in. I, I'm hoping that that can't possibly be the case. Yeah, I'm choosing to interpret Rose Lavelle's uh, karaoke performance as her, um, you know, sort of releasing frustration over Antonovsky's coaching. He, we, again, we can fix this. this. This is fixable, and it's fairly fixable even in a short time frame. Uh, that tying goal that, that Sophia Smith scored in combination with Lavelle, it wasn't like the cleanest thing, right? I think Smith, even after the ball comes back to Smith from a nice little flick from Lavelle, 
Like it still, I think, hits off a couple of German players' shins off Smith's feet, right? Yeah, but, it's just pinballs through there. Yeah, but you're just you're putting Smith in a slightly better position uh, to get a little bit lucky than if than if it's just like okay, uh, put your head down, bulldoze through a set defense. The defense isn't set because they had to go over to Roosevelt and and sort of converge on her, which gives Smith just the tiniest glimmer of opening to do really cool Sophia Smith things. Well, that's the thing is we, you know, we had so, we had so many good chances, even in the first game off of the, off of the transition moments that you mentioned earlier, it's where we have absolute freedom to work on sky afts, you know, I mean, (laughs) we should be working on sky afts and we have, we have freedom to do that because we can still beat really good teams even without them. And the fact that we haven't done it yet is, I don't know, there's a sort of, uh, is it like intellectual laziness from Vlako or complacency? I don't know. I don't know. It's, but it, it's, it's, pretty, it, it's pretty frustrating. Yeah, it's, it's for sure going down for me as the biggest like regret or wasted opportunity of the cycle because we played all of these weak teams last year before we got this awesome four-game stretch. We played so many weak teams, and that is exactly when we could have been hammering, hammering this stuff because we got, we got so many final third reps but they all kind of went to waste and now we're going to try to fix it late. Again, I'm still hoping that we're trying to fix it. And that wasn't just accidental good soccer um, in those moments in this last window, but it definitely feels like we, we uh, lost ourselves a lot of time. Just to recap quickly, you know, in the second half, Lindsay Horan had a great scissor kick attempt off. Uh, we're, we're back in the first game. Sorry. Again, <laughs> back I, to the first game. I apologize that I jumped game. a game too, but, uh, but yes, let's get Let's get into the recap of, game one just just quick quickly that scissor kick was very very nice hit the post um germany scored in transition on a shot off the post that bounced off of casey murphy's back so murphy made a save on a shot and then it it fell to somebody else that's in the immediate aftermath of of haran's bicycle kick like oh is that right ball comes off the post and germany are right back at us uh running the other way and then they were kind of germany was kind of toying with us with those um you know lots of sky afts in the <laughs> late in the late in the second half and just kind of pelting the goal cook loses her marker as i mentioned for a header that murphy palms over um and then rapino got that goal on some hard work from alex morgan in the press and a good pass across the box uh a, a sky aft total of two i think in that case yeah we got to start getting Jer- the three we got to start getting the three yeah. three yeah, three is a great is- number Germany came right back at us and scored when Alana Cook got beat again and allowed uh, Julia Brand to get in behind and square it for Kati Crumbeagle to thump it into an empty net. And, and yeah, so the irony there is Germany get that second goal off a, a not particularly like elegant buildup. Um, just sort of a, it was a quick restart. Huerta had come into the middle and I think committed the foul. Um, and then we were just a little bit slow then to defend the restart with Huerta in the center back zone. Um, we didn't quite get out to their wide player. So Germany, again, Germany were very good at finding those open spaces. Uh, they get a goal in game two in a similar fashion um, where they can, they can hit that open. They recognize where the openings are and then attack them quickly and aggressively. So we still should have had that situation covered with Alana Cook. She's there as a center back. That's, that's a center back's bread and butter to deal with that kind of issue and eliminate the danger. She didn't. Um, and then obviously Crystal Dunn, who had come into the game uh, in the 60th minute or so, lost her she player lost. on the yeah. weak side. 
just a, I mean, to an extent, just kind of outworked or Crystal Dunn maybe thought Elana Cook had the situation under control. Um, but yeah, we left that weak side open and credit to Germany for hitting the square ball, which we love. Instead of taking the low angle shot, play it on the floor, cross goal for the tap in. Yeah, I don't know how many of our attackers would play that square ball across. We hit more square balls too in these two games. Like, and I saw, I actually saw it come out in the comments of people following where like, just shoot it there. Just shoot it there. Like there was a lot of people just saying, just shoot it there, which again, I'm taking that as a sign that we're actually improving our decision-making a little bit. Who's saying that? I'm Who's swimming against just the, shoot it there. the current here. <laughs> Haven't we done enough just shooting it there? Um, okay. Game two was a two, one win. So we end up end the sort of window on a high note. The only lineup changes were Alyssa Nair in goal for Casey Murphy I don't know if Casey Murphy was dinged for having that own goal go, go off her back. I kind of doubt it. No, he Flatco's been rotating goalkeepers uh, almost every almost every game going back the whole year between Nair and Murphy. So I think yeah. I think it's very much still up in the air who who his goalkeeper is here. Nair made some nice saves in this game too. Um, Sauerbrunn, and then of course Sauerbrunn came in for Alana Cook pushing Germa over to the right side of the center back pairing us didn't get its first shot until 35 minutes into the game in this one no in in this second game uh the first half i actually thought was pretty brutal for the u.s and a pretty much kind of a clinic for germany um like germany would possess it for like a minute minute and a half get a, a shot off or at least you know have the ball go into the box in a dangerous threatening way uh the u.s would pretty well like eliminate the danger and then immediately like lump it forward and lose it and germany would come back at us for another minute and a half and it was just that sort of alternating uh danger from germany like survival mode for the u.s for almost the entire first half and then uh we got our back-to-back goals in the in the uh, right around the hour mark right before the hour mark um from smith and pew I thought Pew was a live wire in this game, man. She was she's very dangerous. Um, so we we've discussed that Smith goal kind of a lot already, but it was a, it was a, a it was a bit of a solo effort after that combination with Lavelle, and um, she slalomed through and rode some challenges and then lifted it past the German goalkeeper who got a finger to it, I think, but not enough. And then Pew ran onto a Andy Sullivan long ball and was just quicker and more ruthless than everyone else. And um, the again, the keeper got made contact with it, but it wasn't enough. Germany's goal had come in the first half uh, on a scramble. Just nobody cleared it. I think it was a corner kick, right? No, so this was another one where they caught our fullback upfield. Uh, Emily Fox had kind of come up to try to deal with something and just had a little bit of a loose touch uh, on the defensive side of the ball. And because she was upfield, again, Germany, very good recognition of open, open spaces, um, took Fox's loose touch and immediately clipped it into the left back space that Fox had vacated to come play the ball. Uh, they get the ball down deep into the final third. Uh, initial cross is blocked. Second cross comes into a wide open German player on the far side. She gets her volley off, but that gets blocked into the middle of the field. And then it's a tidy finish. Uh, I don't remember who scored it, to be honest, but just a, a clever finish sort of um, through all the traffic. As, as we were scrambling to defend. Okay. So we came back from one, one Oh down and, and did the business. And I mean, there were a lot of, there were a lot of other chances for the U S in this game and Germany. I mean, it was a good, it's a good soccer game, 
the neutral probably uh, got their money's worth. Oh, I thought it was a fantastic game. And, and again, what it kind of looked like was uh, sort of old school. Uh, I, I'm calling them like old school games where one team is the dominant possessor of the ball and the other team is just very dangerous on the counterattack. We were just the counterattacking team here. Uh, we in the second half, you know, after the first half where we kind of slogged through it, the second half, we were dangerous over and over and over again, mainly off Germany turnovers. And we really were, uh, you know, lightning quick to get behind them. I thought their Germany's back line um, made a lot of mistakes with their discipline to keep their line level. Uh, so we actually could find sort of those home run balls in behind them because, you know, we could take advantage of their poor spacing. Um, and then again, on the goal where Mal Pugh just absolutely bullies two very good German center backs uh, to get herself in on goal and finish. Uh, again, that, that right there for me shows how high the floor is for our team because we can do this kind of stuff, even against a German team that I'm at this point putting as like clear top two, top four favorites for the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, they outplayed... They uh, played England, isn't it fair to say, in the um, or at least outplayed them for big stretches of that Euro final, European Championship final. I so I liked I basically just liked every almost everything that Germany were doing, other than that backline discipline and some a couple of weak moments for their center backs, who were otherwise very good, very good on the ball, very good uh, attacking. They'll even get some rangy runs from their center backs, which I appreciate. Uh, I promise I'm not just a, a new fan of Germany. But I, I thought again there was more. Did to you take steal Skyaft? Did you steal Skyaft from the German Federation? There was there was a lot more positives to take from their play. I thought than even England. I thought England had the same sort of uh, when we played them in the last window. I thought they had similar like control of the ball, similar ideas of ways to control the ball. But I don't think they were anywhere near as effective getting it into the final third. And then I didn't think England's movement in the final third was anywhere close to as good as Germany's was. Um, so I, I also want to put this out there as a compliment to our defense because we had to defend this team and we defended them pretty well, I thought. Mm -hmm. uh, Germany got their looks, um, but never like, almost never to like the full, full on like tap in situations outside of their tap ins that they scored goals on. <laughs> the one, the, <laughs> the main one being the yeah. winner. And, and that one, one didn't actually, that one didn't actually come from the, from a long drawn out German Build up. So on their build up, even though they, I thought they were moving really well, I do think the U.S. handled that pretty well, which is good when when this is sort of a we have a couple of I'm calling them internationally inexperienced back lines. These aren't a bunch of World Cup winners minus Sauerbrunn on our back line. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the the German center backs struggling a little bit is is understandable given how much pressure. Sophia Smith and Mallory Pugh will put on a back line over the course of a game. So much talent. So much talent for the U.S. The women play New Zealand twice in January, mid-January. Um, so we'll be looking forward to those games, and we'll, we'll be going deeper after, like we said, after this World Cup is over into what's going on with the women's national team. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you.